Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. So, good morning, Vineyard Church of Hopkinton. Wow, it is lovely to see you on what could be a glorious day. Now, after a lead-in like Stephen and Lynn just gave me, y'all be prepared. You can't help but be disappointed. <laughs> and I am here then to disappoint you today. For those of you who don't know me, um, my name's Rod Klinger, and my wife and I have been coming to this church for about 23 years now. Kind of crazy to think how the time has passed. And I mean, our kids were born in this church, they grew up in this church. They're now off in college, and Dasha and I get a chance to rediscover what it means you know, to be empty nesters, to be with ourselves. It's a cool adventure. We've been here forever, and you guys have been with us, and so we think of you as kind of our tribe. We love you. And it's always great to be able to share scripture with you and to dive into some of what the Lord says. We are going to be spending the next six weeks or so, Stephen, is that right, on the Minor Prophets. It's a 12 little books toward the end of the Old Testament. Uh, they're called Minor not because they're not important, but because they're short. Fair enough, right? Martin Luther, the great reformer, had a really interesting take on the prophets. He said, the prophets have an odd way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you can't make head or tail of them or see what they're getting at. <laughs> We're going to be spending six weeks with these guys. <laughs> Sounds fun, right? Yeah. Well, we're going to be diving into some of it a little bit, but in fairness, it's actually not all their fault. The books were normally, they're mostly written in Hebrew poetry, and, you know, the rhymes and the puns and the linguistic devices that they use get lost in translation. There are a lot of references to specific towns or kings or happenings at the time that would have made sense to the audience of the prophets, but, you know, 2,500 years later, we, we really don't have a grid for it, and they didn't write linearly. They kind of looped around over the same stuff from different angles. So the prophets are incomprehensible to most of us. That, that would include me. And most of us, as a result, don't spend a whole lot of time with them, except for a few very well-known passages that point very clearly to Jesus. And the prophets were weird people. Just remember, they were weird. Elijah wore a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. Isaiah went around barefoot and naked for three years. Cool, eh? I would want to listen to that guy. Ezekiel shaved his head and his beard back when it was really uncool for a Jewish guy to do that. Micah, who we're going to look at today, went around barefoot and without his outer garments, so he was running around in his skivvies, howling like a wild dog and screeching like an owl. 
cool. John the Baptist wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt, and he ate grasshoppers and wild honey. Does this sound cool? They didn't fit in even in their culture, right? But God called them to be his mouthpieces, and he filled them with his spirit, and he put his words like a fire in their bellies, and they spoke that word at a considerable cost to themselves. They were not popular. Queen Jezebel tried to kill Elijah. John the Baptist was beheaded. Tradition says Isaiah was killed for what he said, and Jeremiah was thrown into a deep cistern where he sank down in the mud and the mire. They had hard lives, and yet they were true to the word that the Lord gave them because the Lord called them to it. And hidden in the ramblings of the prophets, we find some incredible gems. We find God's priorities for us. We find some amazing predictions about the Messiah, Jesus, who would be born hundreds of years later. Micah, for instance, predicted where the Messiah would be born, Bethlehem. It was 700 years before that prophecy came true. So Stephen asked me, hey, Rod, do you have any favorite passages in the Minor Prophets? And I immediately answered, yeah. Micah 6.8, slam dunk. It's short. It's pithy. I think it captures the heart of both the Old and the New Testaments. It's actually one of my very favorite passages in all of Scripture. Let's read it. He's shown you, O man, what's good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's just three things. Now, when I talked to you last, we dug into Second Peter, and I gave you eight things. Three is going to be so much simpler, right? So I did what I always did. I borrowed some commentaries. I bought some commentaries. I read through Micah and all the stuff that connects to it, which, by the way, is a lot of the Old Testament. And it quickly got pretty complex. You see, that little verse that I just pulled out is tucked in the middle of a whole bunch of doom and gloom prophecies where Micah is telling Israel that they had abandoned God and God was about to send judgment on them they would be conquered, taken captive, set out of their homes. Their cities would be destroyed. And this had to happen. But don't fear. At some point, they would be redeemed by God, and he would set a king over them, and all the nations would be blessed. If you were hearing that, would you be like optimistic? Actually, that captivity lasted longer than the lifetimes of most of these people. And we need to get some of Micah's context in order to understand his message. So I hope you'll forgive me if we go down a few rabbit trails today. But um, maybe we should start with a question. This isn't complicated. So why is it so hard? It's hard to do 
right? Well, part of it is that we tend to get ourselves all wound up about our relationship with God. Now, we should be diligent, and we should be deliberate, and we should cultivate that relationship. We should long for, and we should seek His presence, because that's where real life is. But we get all wrapped up around the axle about things that we should or shouldn't do, worrying that we've somehow crossed some threshold and we've gotten on God's naughty list, or patting ourselves on the back because we did something nice and we, we get on his nice list, or we do something nice because we just did something naughty and we want to make up for it, right? We start focusing on behavioral rules, which really are kind of minutia, right? If we focus on the minutia, we actually miss God. Now, we are in the season of Lent, which is leading up to Easter, and we want to focus on Jesus and what he did on his path to the cross. And we will end up at the cross on Good Friday. Jesus cleared the way. God is not really about the minutia, but he's about the heart. In Micah 6.8, the prophet confirms Jesus' core teachings. So let's look at it again. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah wasn't the first to say this. This has been God's desire from the very beginning. Moses, in his farewell address to the Jews as they were getting ready to cross over into the promised land, says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you, statutes, it's hard to say, which I command to you today for your good. Now notice, keep the commands was important, but loving and serving the Lord was the priority. Keeping the commandments flowed out of that love for the Lord. And when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said something similar. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. That's profound. Jesus was asked for the single greatest commandment, and he came back with two the entire law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God, love each other, period. These are the foundation stones for everything. Now, do you want to know how to go wrong with God? <laughs> no, I heard a no back there. Focus on the minutia and make those your priority. The uh, great Jewish rabbi Maimonides in the 12th century went through the law and he determined that there were 248 do this commands 
and 365 don't do this commands. If you focus primarily on these commands and splice them so that there's no way you can break them or so that you always do them, you kind of lose focus and you get your priorities mixed up. Now, Jesus was really mad at the religious leaders of his day. Right? They focused so much on the minutia that they missed the whole point. So Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites? For you're faithful to tithe, it says in some translations, of your mint and your anise the smallest herbs in your garden, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yeah, but don't neglect the more important things. If you get consumed by the minutia, like the Pharisees did, you will end up with a long list of rules governing everything you do, and you'll spend all of your time and your energy adhering to those rules. And then, because we're humans, you're going to look around and you're going to start judging those around you that don't adhere to the rules the way that you think they should. You'll miss the point that way. So, I don't want to just blow up the minutia. After all, Jesus said that we should be diligent in observing the law, but I want to pull us back and look at the big things that Micah talks about. So let's dig into the passage, and maybe it will help us a little bit. First, act justly, or justice. Justice is the Hebrew word mishpat. Uh, we often think of justice as getting the bad guy, right? Every cops and robbers movie, almost every action-adventure movie, justice is nailing that guy that just did something really bad. But mishpat is a lot bigger than that. In the Old Testament, it actually gets used for standing up for the underdog. So in Deuteronomy 10.18, it says God executes justice, mishpat, for the fatherless and for the widow. And he commands the Jews to do likewise. Here's what Moses says. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He's the great God, the mighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality and who cannot be bribed. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you, and he gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to the foreigners, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. In our current political climate, this actually should ring pretty loud for us. Now, it really upsets the Lord when people don't do justice. The prophet Isaiah rips into Israel for exactly this. Your leaders are like wolves who tear apart their victims. They actually destroy people's lives for money. And your prophets cover up for them by announcing false visions and making lying predictions. They say, oh, my message is from the sovereign Lord, but the Lord hasn't spoken a single word to them. Even the common people oppress the poor, rob the needy, and deprive the foreigners of justice. The underdog, the widow, 
the fatherless, the foreigner. God values them. And if there isn't justice, it's a sign that we've wandered away from God. Now, justice is not an end in itself. It needs to be grounded in God. The author Andy Crouch says, if you attempt to bring justice without Jesus, you might not even get justice. You will certainly not get justice as the Bible understands it. The restoration of all things to their created fruitfulness in relationship to the one who made them. If you follow Jesus, he will use you to bring justice. If you want justice, follow Jesus. Next, mercy. Love mercy. This is the Hebrew word chesed. Um, it's one of the more difficult words in Hebrew to translate because there is no single English word that captures it. Chesed is kindness, mercy that springs from a covenant relationship with God and man. It's not sentimental love. It can be tough love. It's not Hollywood love. It's strong. It's steadfast. It's loyal. Chesed can be translated mercy. It also gets translated steadfast love or kindness or loving kindness. In the book of Exodus, God promises to show chesed to thousands of generations of those who keep his commandments. Where it's used elsewhere in the Bible, it's generally paired with doing kindness or having kindness or showing kindness. But to love kindness is unique to this verse. To be a lover of chesed, it's, it's something you are. It's something that is a priority for you. Finally, to walk humbly. Humbling ourselves before God, walking humbly with him, is kind of the foundation for both mercy and justice. To walk humbly is to set aside our preferences and to focus on God's priorities. Uh, the particular word that's used here for humbly is tzana, and it's used only here in all of the Old Testament. But a very similar word is found in Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. So humility is the counterbalance to pride. Humility is laying ourselves down. Pride is making ourselves big. The very phrase walking with means that it's not something that we can do ourselves. We need to walk with someone. We need to walk with God. We need to walk together. So then why is it so hard? should be simple, right? Just walk with God. Generally, we want to do something, don't we? Do you like definition? I like definition. I like boundaries. I like knowing, hey, you can go this far, but don't go any further because you're going to get in trouble. But stay over here. This boundary is a really good boundary. Stay in this space, right? We want that. We're, we're people. And you know what? Jesus doesn't give us a lot of that. The Pharisees tried that to excess, right? The boundaries became crushing. 
But Jesus doesn't give us a lot of that. His boundary is us giving our whole selves, our whole hearts, and everything we have to him and using it for him. It's not a bad place to be. I mean, Jesus says that the poor in spirit, the humble, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Don't know about you, but I like that possibility. Humility is literally a lowliness of mind. And it has been said that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. The problem is that's just hard. So Micah 6.8 is placed in the middle of what scholars call a covenant lawsuit, showing how Israel had utterly failed to do this. It's God suing Israel. That's what he's doing. It opens with Micah saying, hey, the Lord is lodging a charge against you, Israel. And then the Lord asks, and I am paraphrasing here, do forgive me. The Lord's asking, why have you abandoned me? What did I do to make you tired of me? Haven't I been good to you? Didn't I call you out of slavery into freedom? Didn't I give you some pretty amazing leaders to bring you to the promised land? And didn't I give you this promised land? I kept my promises. Didn't I protect you? Haven't I sheltered you? Israel's response is interesting. It's like, well, so uh, what do you want from us? What, what, what can we do? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, there is some hyperbole here. There's a little bit of exaggeration, right? There saying, yeah, God, right, we can't meet your requirements. But it is worth noting that some people, and even some kings in those days, were sacrificing their children to Molech, making them walk through the fire, what the scripture calls the detestable God of the Ammonites. So it's not total hyperbole. You're like, God, what do we have to do? So, uh, well, so the prophet Jeremiah says, they built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech, though I never commanded, nor did it ever enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and make Judah so sin. God doesn't want that, right? So when Israel asks, well then God, what do you want? They're kind of thinking they can buy him off. You know, what, what religious ritual do you want? Okay, we'll sing the songs. We'll, we'll go to church. We'll make the sacrifices, right? But it's the wrong question. They missed the point entirely. God doesn't want their ritual observances. He doesn't want some religious rite. They can't buy him off. He wants them he wants their hearts. Now, he wants our hearts too. He wants your heart. 
He wants my heart. He wants us to long after him and to long after his ways. So let's bring it in for a landing. Uh, the author, Pete Gregg, who I'm currently really a big fan of, he's the founder of the 24 by 7 prayer movement. He points out that when Jesus called his disciples, his priority was that they would be with him. In the book of Mark, it says, he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and he could send them to preach and have authority to cast out demons. We typically skip to the, you know, God to preach and cast out demons, but his primary calling was for them to be with him. Only secondarily was it so he could send them out. Greg says that before you do great things for Jesus, we're called simply to be his friends. Micah says something similar. The Lord wants us to walk with him. It's not about the minutia. It's about him. When Jesus went to the cross, he fulfilled the law. All 613 of those do's and don'ts were nailed to the cross with him. We don't need to worry about those things anymore. We need to worry. We need to seek, to pursue him. So then it comes down to this. He's shown you, O oh man, what's good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Yeah. Let's give our hearts to him. Now, let's just take a couple of minutes and sort of process this together. The Lord wants us to want him and he wants to be here with us, with each of us. Maybe some of you are here, well, I'm here because Stephen asked me to preach. <laughs> some of you might be here because you're feeling guilty or because you feel like, oh, well, this is just the thing that we're supposed to do on Sunday to please God. Um, maybe some of you are feeling guilty about something you did this week or processing something, a, a deep wounding or something tragic, whatever. <laughs> God wants to meet you in that. He wants you to know him. So why don't we close in just a moment of prayer and we'll ask him for exactly that. And if you've got some burden on your heart, whatever that might be, just lay that before him right now. Offer it up to him and let him come and meet you in that place. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your cross, for your love, for your life poured out for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here with us, among us, ministering today. Lord, we lay before you all of our hopes and dreams, all of our hurts and triumphs, everything that we are and all that we will do. 
And we say, Lord, make something beautiful of this. Come and touch me right now where I am. For you love me. And I love you.